welcome to Sunday on the Pod with Casey, Flo, and Rosa. Welcome to Sunday on the Pod. Sunday on the Pod is a podcast all about musical theatre. However, this podcast isn't just for performers, but it's for anyone who loves musical theatre. Each episode, we cover musicals that some of you may love, some of you might hate, or maybe you've never heard of them before. Either way, we will be singing and dancing about them. Now, if you didn't already know, we pick a musical and we discuss its plot, the show's creators, dissecting specific songs, lyrically, musically, delving into any juicy gossip in our brand new segment called Stage Door Secrets, and my personal favourite, putting on our very own casting director hats and choosing a fantasy cast with another brand new segment, the Mega Mix Casting. There's a lot of new changes and I can't wait to get stuck in. So, what are you waiting for? Sit back and enjoy the pod. And just a reminder to everyone that the best way to support our show is by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And you can keep up with us on socials. We're at Sunday on the Pod on Insta and Twitter. And you can find us on our Facebook page, which is Sunday on the Pod. So what musical are we discussing today? I can hear you all shiver with Antissa Patient. Very good. Very good. I was waiting to see how long you were going to go with that. It could have been like three minutes. Yeah, it could have been ages. (laughs) It could have. We are covering the Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) Can't wait. Actually, very exciting because I love this musical. I I watched a lot of musicals growing up, but I think this was one of the first where I really kind of fell in love with theatre and performance and kind of seen like what performance could be and it was just great Loved I it. think it's one of those shows especially if you're like a gay teen growing up like I remember discovering it when I was 14 being like oh my god like I feel seen like this. yeah which is really I mean it obviously <laughs> has a heavy like queer following but I mean even for me who didn't even know at the time I watched it I must have only been about 13 but it's kind of resonates with you it is kind of a musical for people who don't fit in I feel and it kind of resonates with people in that way and that's why I think it gained such a cult following as as it were but it's so interesting because I when I remember being like oh my god Rocky Horror no one in my because I was kind of the weird one in school that liked musicals and everyone else kind of didn't so I was already weird and then I was like oh Rocky Horror like these people get me like I guess I'm just a weirdo and then Perks of Being a Wallflower came out and in Perks of Being a Wallflower uh the characters do the we'll go on to this later but they participate in the Rocky Horror Picture Show in one of the shadow casts and then suddenly it became a bit mainstream and everyone who watched uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower was suddenly obsessed with the Rocky Horror Picture Show very interesting and it was kind of like you know when you're that age and you're like you almost get a bit possessive over the things that you like. Like now, yeah. I'm like, oh, people just can dislike whatever. But when you're like 14 and someone likes a band that you like, you're like, in your head, you're like, they don't like them as much as I did. Like, I like yeah, them. exactly. It's just like, it's just like when it's, it's like, it's like when someone has like a top and then they buy the same top as you and you're like, that was my top first. Like, I went to Gap before you went to Gap. You can't wear the same Gap hoodie as me. Like, yeah, I went to Gap Kids all the time, and I'm not afraid to say it. Gap Kids was fantastic. It was great. I was so, I was so annoying. I would be that kid that was like, if anybody had anything to do with Marilyn Monroe, like, and 
she's heavily commercialized now she's on everything <laughs> yeah. but if anything had any i'd be like oh what's your favorite movie of hers oh. <laughs> and they'd be like oh um um and i'd be like oh really mine's niagara yeah <laughs> Oh, was it gentlemen prefer blondes? Typical. Mm. Yeah. How, how predictable. <laughs> There's no business like show business. What a shock. <laughs> I love that. But also, I guess this episode is extra special because if you didn't already know, it's spooky season. Well, it's just been spooky season. So we have just had Halloween and my personal favourite bonfire night, which is actually tonight. And I think that's fairly spooky. I love bonfire night. It's my favourite. Me too. I love a good it's sausage such and beans. a magical night. What? Sausage and beans. What? I know I said that without any reaction. I was like, I expected more. Sausage and beans, that's what everyone has on one by night. Or is that just me? Is it? Yeah. Sorry. I thought you would I thought like the 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 bonfire like food is like treacle toffee or something. Like that's what I think. Absolutely not. No, no, no. You need your wellies on. You, you, you need your wellies on, you need your best waterproofs, standing in a wet, cold field with a cup of sausage and beans. You guys look a, a really cup? disgusted. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. Know yeah. That I think cup. <laughs> you get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have to travel to a field. You have to travel to your nearest field, stand and watch the fireworks, you have a hot, you have a hot mug of sausage and beans. Is this not normal? I feel like this is a southern thing. Yeah, that I've never heard of that in my life. Well, okay. Well, I feel very, I feel very embarrassed now about that. I want to know how they fit the sausage in the cup. You have to just cut them up. Is it you like have to cut up the sausage? Oh, it's not. It's not just like a whole sausage sticking out of a cup. No, no. Otherwise, that would also be a bit suggestive. In my head, it was like the Heinz pins. No, 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 you need you need proper good sausages that you just cut up and you put into your beans and you eat them with a spoon out of your mug. Where do you put the spoon after? You you carry it with you. See, I I'm not fucking about with that. That's where <laughs> I'd be drawn. I feel like this is really <laughs> this has really put the cat amongst the pigeons here. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, people at home, if if you eat sausage and beans, then we want you to email in just with sausage and beans. Just let us know. Like a toffee apple or treacle toffee, but no, a cup of beans and sausage. Yeah, I've actually got my sausage ready for tonight. Christ. <laughs> Who are you going with? Are the people that you're going with also attending with No one. Well, okay, well, this is the thing. This is the thing. Yesterday was the big night for fireworks. So obviously everyone out to like Alexander Palace or Battersea yeah. Park or whatever. Um I didn't actually, I stayed at home watching the fireworks from my window, which was really nice. Sounds really sad, but it was actually a really nice night. But because tonight is the night, it's like the fifth, tonight is the night I'm going to have my sausages and my beans. And I've already got my sausages in the fridge waiting to go. Oh, that's really sweet. But are you going to the fireworks tonight? Well, no, because it's a Sunday night. Who am I going to go with? Everyone's getting ready for work tomorrow. Everyone that has a normal job, they have work to go to. (laughs) They've got a nine to five. Anyway, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, so excited to talk about it, so let's delve right in. So, just for the purposes of today, we will be talking about the 1975 movie. Uh, But as we all know, the movie was based on a stage musical called The Rocky Horror Show. So just a little bit about the musical. It was written by Richard O'Brien, 
who at the time he was a kind of out of work actor and he says that he wrote it just as a way to keep busy during the winter um and he had been in a production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar directed by an Australian director called Jim Sharman and he basically showed him a small section of the script of Rocky Horror and Jim Sharman was like hey I'm on board um and he decided to direct it at uh upstairs at the Royal Court which at the time was kind of like an experimental theatre venue um and as the musical began to rehearse it was actually Jim Sharman who suggested that he change the name because Richard O'Brien had called it they came from Denton High and uh Jim Sharman was like I think it should be called the Rocky Horror Show which is the much better name so like the That's much better so title. Weird. but why that name is that maybe where they met because didn't they meet in a science class or something yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where the the characters met. Right, so that might be it. Um, but yeah, much better name, the Rocky Horror Show. Um, the show was kind of like immediately successful, so it moved kind of really quickly from upstairs at the Royal Court, which was just a sixty-seater room, to uh, Chelsea Classic Cinema, um, and then it found a permanent home on uh, the third of November, nineteen seventy-three. So a couple months after it opened at Kings Road Theatre. Um, and it ran for seven years, um, from 3rd of November 1973 to the 13th of September 1980, and it closed after 2,960 performances. Um, which, When I was reading that, I was wow. like, why would you not just make it to 3,000 and then close it? But, but also, that's really interesting that it started at like Sloan Square, Chelsea area, because obviously yeah. that's where a lot of like, the punk stuff was going on so it makes sense that's so that's really interesting yeah and I kind of just love as well that like uh Richard O'Brien was kind of like a he was like you know he was in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar which is pretty good um and he'd been in like I think a couple other shows directed by that Jim Sharman um but I quite like that he just was out of work and he was like oh, I'm just gonna write a really weird musical <laughs> It also had transatlantic debuts in New York City and at the Roxy in LA before kind of finally premiering on Broadway in 1975 at the Belasco Theatre. Um, it has since spanned countless productions in countless countries. I was trying to list them all. Basically, every country in the world pretty much has done a Rocky Horror uh, adaption. <laughs> so it is an international hit. Um, so kind of back to the film then. So Jim Sharman continued on in his role as director and he helped O'Brien adapt the screenplay. Um, the film was shot in the UK and it was split between kind of studio shots at Bray Studios and location shots at Oakley Court, which was an old country estate. So this is quite interesting because the estate had also been used by Hammer Film Productions, who were really well known for their kind of like horror B-movies, science fiction kind of like B-movies. And obviously Rocky Horror takes a lot of its kind of inspiration from these kind of B-movies, these science fiction B-movies that um, Richard Bryan really loved. And they reused a lot of the props and the set pieces from the Hammer Film Productions horror films in the, in the film. I just think that's so sweet. Whoa. Actually, to be fair, I, there's that the, that's that beginning shot where they both enter the house for the first time and there's loads of like... There's loads of like tit tat around yeah. them. Like there's like a leopard with a snake wrapped around it. I'm like, is that what is that from? And that must be from like. It's just all from these these uh, these horror films. 
by this Hammer Film Productions. Isn't that so funny? Um, and then the costume designer, Sue Blaine, um, she said that she basically didn't do any research on... This is why it's quite interesting, I think, because the film has got such a style and it is obviously paying homage to those kind of like pretty bad science fiction B-movies, but she didn't do any research on that. She actually took her inspiration for the kind of costume design as like the developing kind of punk scene, as you were saying, like in um, in Chelsea, London at the time. So she was using like fishnets and dyed hair and kind of like wild makeup. And it has this kind of like Brechtian feel like the makeup as well. This like really, really dark, heavy eyeliner, these really, really dark um, lipsticks. But I think that's what makes actually quite, it's quite a visually interesting film because you've got the juxtaposition of like these kind of weird sci-fi props but mixed with like this really like punk rock style. Cause I always think like the um the you know the outfits that the kind of chorus wear, like the little top hats and yeah. but then they've got those yes. little sci-fi goggles. I always find them it's such an interesting juxtaposition. It's so odd. Yeah. But it just is so eclectic <laughs> and it really, really works. Um so I think it's 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 so interesting that costume designer, her taking that kind of like London feel. Because I do think like you can feel London so infused in that show. Yeah, definitely. So the cast for the film, we had Tim Curry as Dr. Frankenfurter. He had played Frankenfurter on the West End and he's kind of since become almost synonymous with the film. Um I don't think anyone who's seen the film doesn't know about Tim Curry and he's he's kind of never really escaped that role, but he loves it, which is very, very sweet. Um, Susan Sarandon, of course, as Janet Weiss. Uh, love you, Susan Sarandon. <laughs> I first fell in love with Susan Sarandon when I watched Rocky Horror. And I'm still in love with her now. Barry Bostwick as Brad Majors, Janet's fiance. We have Richard O'Brien as Riff Raff. Uh, obviously, he wrote it as well, and he played Riff Raff on the West End. Patricia Quinn as Magenta, who also originated that role on the West End. Um, Little Nell or Nell Campbell as Columbia. Again, she originated that role in the West End. Jonathan Adams, who plays the narrator in the film, he also uh, was in the West End version, but he played Dr. Everett Scott, um, who's kind of Frankenfurter's rival scientist. Then we have Peter Hinwood as Rocky Horror, Meatloaf, of course, as Eddie, and Meatloaf did actually play Eddie on Broadway, uh, Charles Gray as the criminologist, and then we have Hilary Farr as Betty Monroe. So the film, really interestingly... Um, carries over a lot of the kind of strong West End cast over and I think again when you're watching it you really get the sense of like these people are very at home in those characters because probably by the time well it was shot in 1974 so they had been in rehearsals and been playing it for around what a year and a half two years Mm -hmm. so this is like a well rehearsed it's such a tight group I think like especially Columbia um, Little Nell as Columbia and Magenta and, of course, uh, Tim Curry. I think the three of them, Riff Raff kind of sits outside of that anyway, but the three of them, their chemistry is just so, it's so brilliant. Yeah. It really just feels like... Whew. I think in the nicest possible way, it was just a great way of getting like a bunch of weirdos together, like that everyone is so sort of... A motley crew. Yeah, definitely. Like everyone, especially for the time, everyone kind of sat outside of like the the norms of of etiquettes and theatre and everything. And I think these performers really wanted to do something that was quite out there. And you can really tell that they really enjoyed and kind of put the heart and soul into it. 
and it you can and they've all since gone on to have careers playing quite eclectic characters as well yeah it's like tim curry's second most favorite character second most famous character is obviously the clown in it or it oh my god of course yeah he's also and i rewatched this movie yesterday and i absolutely love it and there's so many similarities in it but there's um a movie called clue which is if you haven't seen it it's basically a film version of the board game cluedo (gasps) oh my god i need to see this so it's it's so cheesy but in the best way (laughs) it's 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 brilliant but he plays the butler who kind of like orchestrates the whole thing and he's so like it's just it's very tim curry-esque but then it is set in like an old creepy mansion yeah clue is actually a really good movie it's so fun like it's not i mean it's not an oscar winner (laughs) no it's not and you know what i know i know your hatred for turning movies into musicals, Rosa. But I think that Clue would be an excellent musical. No, I, I agree. I think it's got the perfect source material. Yeah, 100%. It's so fun and silly. You could have such a wild time with Clue and you could make it so audience interactive as well. Yeah. It would be, you know what, that would be, a, it's probably been done, but that would be a great fringe show is Clue the musical and it's yeah, like that's audience true. participation. It'd be good, like immersive. It'd be good, like like a good, like immersive show. If you did it in a big house, that would be a really cool immersive show. Well, originally, what they did, uh, originally, what they did is there's three there's three different endings to the film, um, and what they did to kind of make people talk about it because obviously there was no sort of social media or anything at that time. It was kind of word of mouth that people would talk about films. There was three different endings to the film. Um, and they showed different versions in different theatres. So everyone that kind of went to see it could have seen a different ending. So you'd be talking about it. and Oh, I love that. Yeah. You never see fun things like that anymore. I know. And I think it just it's a really fun and silly, silly film. But the three ending... It, I mean, when you watch the film now, it has all three endings sort of laid out for you at the end. And you can watch all three. But I just thought that was a really silly little campy thing to do <laughs> it's a very goofy little <laughs> goofy move <laughs> so the film actually had a really negative reception upon release um so people really didn't like it they didn't get it it wasn't really for mainstream american audiences but where it gained traction of course um well but where it gained traction of course was as a quote-unquote midnight movie so midnight movie is more of an american term But this is the uh, definition that I got from Wikipedia. Thank you. The term midnight movie is rooted in the practice that emerged in the 1950s of local television stations around the United States airing low-budget genre films as late-night programming, often with a host delivering ironic asides. So um, how that kind of translates with Rocky Horror is they were basically shown in kind of like... It was shown in those kind of late night screenings in these kind of dive cinemas and then part of what kind of helped make it a big hit and gain this kind of cult following was this audience participation so the audience participation for rocky horror is believed to have started at the waverly theater in new york city and at the king's court theater in pittsburgh in 1976 where audiences who really loved the show and they would come back uh, to watch the different screenings they began to talk back to the screen so there's like this really sweet story 
of how this kind of originated. So there was a teacher who used to go with their kind of teacher pals called Lewis Ferris Jr. And he was normally like a really, really quite quiet guy, really chilled out. Apparently he was just so <laughs> obsessed with this film and it brought out so much in him that upon seeing um, Janet place the newspaper over her head to protect herself from the rain, he yelled out, buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch. <laughs> 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 and that's apparently how it kind of started oh my god so um lewis and the other people in his kind of friendship group they're kind of known as like the rocky horror pioneers um because they basically would go every week and they would try and come up with like little funny quips that to try and make each other laugh during the screening and then it just quickly caught on with like the other people that were going and then it it kind of began this almost like scripted because everyone when you go to a Rocky Horror screening now everyone knows the exact line to say at the exact point um so they describe it as this kind of counterpoint dialogue um and it has now become like a standard practice of any screening like I don't think you could go to any screening and people are not going to be repeating uh the kind of same lines back at uh back at the screen so this then evolved um from the Waverly Theatre and the King's Court Theatre into what they call shadow casts where fans who would dress up in costume as the characters would stand in front of the screen mind the actions of the actors on film and then lip sync the lines um and this became like hugely famous and there was like groups of like you can see the casts actually if you look up um on playbills for like acting as these shadow casts and it was just people who really loved uh the films and that that waverly theater specifically it was a group of teachers um, who just were all so obsessed with it that they then became this kind of shadow cast. And I think a lot of them then went on to become actors and stuff. Um, and this practice is obviously still kind of held today with many theatres, mainly in America, running these kind of shadow shadow casts. So this is what's fascinating. Due to the popularity of these shadow casts and the theatres still running the film, it's technically still in limited release. So it's technically from when it was released in 1975, it's never stopped showing in a theater, in film theaters. So it's still, and you know how they'll be like, oh, limited run, mm-hmm. and then it goes to DVD. It's just stayed in limit in, in a limited release 48 years yeah. after its premiere in 1975. Yeah, I read I read that it said it was like, I, I read it said it was the longest running theatrical release in film, but I was like, what does that mean? But now that makes sense. Yeah, it is just absolutely mad. Um, And kind of to do with these shadow casts and people just really resonating with it, I think, because of its kind of quirkiness, its kind of outside, uh, outsiderness. um, And there's a lot of LGBTQ plus themes. um, But Vera Dika, she wrote a book called Recycled Culture in Contemporary Art and Film. She describes the kind of like cult following really well. And she says that to the fans, Rocky Horror is a ritualistic and uh, and comparable to a religious event with a compulsive repeated cycle of going home and coming back to see the film each weekend. The audience callbacks are similar to responses in a church during mass, which I think is just like a really, really nice way of summing up how reverent people are towards like not only the film, but the ritual of going and dressing up and saying the same lines and and things like that. I was going to say, do you guys know what newcomers are called? at a Rocky Horror show, like, if you've never seen it before. Virgins? Yeah, they're called Virgins. Like, that's their nickname, which is just, like, 
that just says it all that like these people are so obsessed that they're like anyone either like you're a virgin when I um first because I watched the film like alone and I absolutely loved it and I got my friend into it um who was two years younger than me at the time so I was like 14 he was like 12 and we we got really obsessed with this show and then like a year later we saw that it was running at Halloween and we dressed up fully like went full out dressed up in all the gear went into a, a cinema in Manchester and nobody else was dressed up and we felt so stupid. We'd brought props and everything. We weren't allowed to use them. And we were like so upset. And then the following year, it then went on tour and we got tickets to go watch it on tour and didn't dress up because we were so embarrassed. Then got to the theater and there was these like like people who go all the time were like, oh, oh we got some virgins here. We've got some virgins. And I was like, no. <laughs> also, weird to be calling 14 and 12-year-olds virgins, but... We'll, I mean, to we'll be fair, this was, this was like two years after we had originally watched okay. it. So we were like 14, 16 at the time. But um, yeah, and we were so upset because we literally were, was all out on it, watched it all the time. And we were so embarrassed that we turned up, not dressed up. But I think we were so embarrassed from turning up to the the cinema screening. And then after that, we went again the same week. We went all out. And we actually got our picture taken and was posted on the Time Warp Rocky Horror Fan website. Wow. Let's track down that picture. (laughs) I I will try to find that for you guys because it's really quite cute. But... Yeah. you should have uh when you went to that first screening no one else was dressed up i would have loved if you like you aged 14 and your friend 12 mm-hmm. to everyone else being like looks like we've got a couple of virgins around here <laughs> <laughs> it was so because we literally we were so obsessed and we would we went all out and we just were so embarrassed but <laughs> just two little queer kids sat in the cinema like oh <laughs> oh no in 2005, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I would argue that it is definitely all three. Um, so in terms of adaptions then, we obviously have the uh, iconic Glee uh, episode yeah. of Rocky Horror, where Emma and uh, Emma sings Touch a Touch Me. Um, I don't think any of us ever got over that. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> in 2016, uh, Fox remade a what they called a modern reimagining of the film called The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Let's Do the Time Warp Again, long title, directed by Kenny Ortega, who directed High School Musical. Love. I don't know how that, that jumped. And Hocus Pocus. Love. Sorry, and Hocus Pocus. And, very randomly, uh, Michael Jackson's This Is It tour. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a... A very varied <laughs> and eclectic belt. He's got such a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, an eclectic belt uh, below yieldy uh, Kenny Ortega. I also saw really unrelated, but I saw an interview with Zac Efron a couple weeks ago. I don't know why I was watching it. I think it just you know when you're just like scrolling, doom scrolling YouTube or something, and um, it was Michael Jackson who uh, Michael Jackson. It was Zac Efron went for dinner with Kenny Ortega after uh, High School Musical 3 and halfway through the dinner Kenny Ortega was like uh, someone's calling for you and you really need to take this call and Zac Efron was like okay that's weird like we're having dinner 
and he answered the phone and um, it was just Michael Jackson. <laughs> and Michael Jackson was like, oh, I really love your work. I thought you were great in high school. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> it's just so random. It's obviously because Kenny, Kenny Ortega like did the book, but it's so weird that Michael Jackson was like, yeah, Zac Efron's really, really good in high school. Musical. <laughs> also, High School Musical 3 is probably arguably the worst high school musical like out of all of them. Absolutely. I think you probably meant like your work in general in the franchise, but yeah. But we can agree I think that High the second Musical one two. is the best. Oh, absolutely. Uh, literally, High School Musical 2 is the best. Yeah. Like, no argument. Yeah, it's iconic. Sorry. Got, it, it's got to go my own way from High School Musical 2. Got to go yes. my own way. Yes, it is. And also, actually, fun fact fun fact, um, Bet on It from High School Musical 2 has just hit platinum. Uh, Thought I'd just let everyone know. <laughs> that is that know. is the best song, actually. It is such a great song. And I have always thought it was a great song because of that amazing scene where he's looking at his mirror reflection in the river and he like splashes oh, it with yeah. his hand. He's like, he's like, you know, clicking away down the river, and I'm like, icon. Like that made Zach Efron. That little <laughs> scene. Add that to your showreel. Like that was fantastic. Fantastic acting. Add that to your showreel along with the really odd camp walk that he does halfway through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I also love that Zac Efron, his voice was blended with another actor's voice for the first movie because they didn't think his singing was strong enough. Yeah. And High School Musical 2, he said they didn't blend his voice and he said, I'll show you. And he did. There you go. He really did. And that's why Michael Jackson phoned him. <laughs> <laughs> that is why. So... <laughs> In this 2016 remake then, Lou Sadler, who exec produced the original film, also exec produced the remake, which I think is quite nice. And the cast for the remake included uh, the incredible Laverne Cox as Dr. Frankenfurser, uh, Ryan McCartan as Brad, Victoria Justice, I think we all sing, <laughs> as Janet, <laughs> Reeve Carney as Riff Raff, Staz Nair as Rocky, Adam Lambert as Eddie, which I will say is pretty good casting I think to follow on from Meatloaf and then my favourite person in the world Annalie Ashford as Columbia I am not gonna lie that production I hated it oh it's shocking it's so bad it's so bad <laughs> I mean I'm one of those people that always says that like when people are like oh things don't need to be redone I'm always like it's never gonna take the place of the original if you prefer yeah. the original you prefer the original but I genuinely feel like there isn't much more to do with Rocky Horror. It's very is what it is. So there's not more they could have, like much more they could have added to the 2016 but, one. Because I think you should make a remake if there's something more to say on it. Yeah. If there's something that's maybe more relevant to this time now, or you're going to come at it from a different angle and it's got that something to say. I'm just not sure what else there is to say with Rocky Horror that wasn't said with the original musical and movie yeah. do you know what I mean yeah and I think they tried to maybe write some wrongs of the original that's maybe of its time but I just am not sure no. if it needed to be done and it was too there wasn't enough dirt that's the thing I thought with the remake was it was very polished it was very like here are some amazing musical theater stars yeah. and they're gonna be and they're like they are incredible but like what's quite charming about the original is that they're kind of rough and ready and actors messy, who do yeah. can sing, but they're yeah they're messy and it's it's, it's gritty, kind of dirty yeah. and it's yeah. gritty it's gritty yeah 
and I thought the um the remake was was too polished really. I think I think as well in a lot of the I think in the original Rocky Horror the cast can sing but they're not brilliant. It's I think that kind of adds to it. Like Susan Sarandon yeah. self-admittedly said I cannot sing. So how I got cast in a musical is beyond but me. But her voice is so perfect it's for It's perfect. Yeah, yeah it's and so also good. um Patricia Quinn who plays Magenta can hold a tune but it's sort of this low sort of gruff speak singing almost but it it works perfectly but it like yeah. it's not this kind of me yeah. you know what i mean that kind of <laughs> yeah oh, what we that kind of happened in the 2016 one so yeah oh yeah it was a bit like but they've all got gorgeous voices yeah and that's why meatloaf is so perfect in the original i think because you're like oh because he's playing eddie and eddie was like this kind of like sexist star and a motorbike when meatloaf come cra- comes crashing through you're like, oh my god, it's me! <laughs> like he's got this quality, and you can see why everyone was obsessed with him. And it's just like this brush of like kind of rock and roll, fresh air. Like it's so exciting. But I don't think you can have like because in that cast list for the 2016 one, they're kind of all of a pretty equal star power. There's no like meatloaf. There's no meatloaf of that cast. Yeah. Because they're all famous, you know. I think we all sing. So. <laughs> So I'm going to take us on to a little bit behind the creative side of the musical. Um, So take us a bit away from the cast. I know we've kind of already touched on it, uh, but the creator of this show, obviously, as we know, is Richard O'Brien, who did the original music, lyrics and book for the 1973 musical. Uh, Just a fun fact, because why not? He's British New Zealand because he emigrated to New Zealand I think in his, I want to say when he was kind of in his, like in his early part of his years. Um, and he is an actor, writer, musician, TV presenter. And I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, TV presenter. So apparently he presented four series of The Crystal Maze on Channel 4, which I had no idea, um, which is just so fun. because what? you not know that? No, I had no idea. But then again, I was born in 1998, so... I didn't. I didn't watch. I was born in nineteen ninety eight. Okay, well, I did. I didn't watch the nineteen the the nineties Crystal Maze. Um, <laughs> but I just I, I just didn't realize that he did that. But actually, that used to be my favorite fun fact. They used to try. Really? Was like, oh my god! You know the presenter of the Crystal Maze? He wrote Rocky Horror Picture Show. That was like my fact when I was like fifteen. I used to watch like the old reruns. <laughs> it was like it was always on Gold, like re- reruns of gold. gold. Oh my god! Yeah, Gold. <laughs> that's so funny well I think maybe more of like I think maybe more of something that I was like oh my gosh okay I definitely I definitely didn't know this was that he was the voice of Lawrence Fletcher in Disney Channel's Phineas and Ferb and Lawrence Fletcher is the dad in Phineas and Ferb there you go. See that 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 was the that was the reaction I was looking for. A little bit more shock. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So he played the dad in that, which is again his his Disney Channel roots. Was it? Wait, is he the guy that he did Disney Channel, or was that someone else who did High School Musical? Kenny Ortega. That was Kenny Ortega. Who okay. Directed the remake. Ignore that. Um, so yeah. So he was the creator. I would love to see a Richard O'Brien directed high school musical. <laughs> yeah, that would be be pretty dark and twisted. So that was a bit about Richard O'Brien. Um, 
Moving on to the actual film adaptation or, uh, in 1975. So it's produced by a guy called Lou Adler, uh, who actually also was the music producer for Carol King and The Mummers and Puppers. Bitch. Oh, didn't know that. What? <laughs> that is so Guys, cool. Guys, I love dropping a bomb. Like, I love being like, there you go, mic drop. I love adding in, like, fun facts that's like, <laughs> you would have never guessed. Um... Uh, so he produced it along with a guy called Michael White, who produced West End shows in the 70s, including Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat in 1973, Two Gentlemen of Verona in 1973, and The Rocky Horror Show, um, uh, and A Chorus Line in 1976, which this thing is interesting. Yeah, I know all that it was within the 70s. Um, so really, really strong production side. Um, the screenplay, as we know, was written by Richard O'Brien and a guy called Jim Sharman. Um, and the music, uh, even though the, the songs were done by Richard O'Brien, the actual music uh, adaptation was by a guy called Richard Hartley. And fun fact, Richard Hartley was originally part of the four-piece band for Rocky Horror and then went on to arrange the score for the London stage and film adaptation so he was just like in the band and then obviously they were like this guy's great let's get him to do like the actual like adaptation for us oh that's so nice no um so yeah that I that's what I found out about the creators but you know me, I love a good fun fact. So the same guy that did the music, Richard Hartley, the guy who was just talking about who was in the band, he also did the music for the 1986 Doctor Who story, Mind Warp, which I just think... Let's do the Mind Warp again. <laughs> there you go. Um, so yeah. That's so fun. <laughs> I know, really, really fun. Um, but actually, I was going to say, when you were talking about the movie, um, you know, mate, I love a good thing with figures. I love to know how much something makes. So within the first, uh, the first week it was released, in 1975, the movie, it only made 21,245 in the opening weekend, which is like nothing. And it was really really bad and there was lots of like critics who this is a quote apparently the movie lacked both charm and dramatic impact and the movie was tasteless <laughs> and, and 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 apparently the movie was tasteless plotless and pointless which i'm like okay but then overall obviously sorry for having fun <laughs> yeah sorry for having fun um but then obviously after the big cult following and the big boom in the movie so the actual budget for the film that they had was 1.4 million dollars but the actual box office that they made in total was 226 million dollars come on so come on there you go it did very very well that is so funny also what did they say they said charmless and without dramatic. It said um, lacking both charm and dramatic impact. Yeah, that's like, sorry, if you I don't know, reviewed my diary from when I was 14, that's what they said would have said about that. <laughs> <laughs> also, Rocky Horror is many things, but plotless is not one of them. It is absolutely, tis... there's almost too many plots. Tis plotful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of plotful, I'm going to give you a little breakdown 
of of the plot of Rocky Horror. Now, don't worry if you can't keep up because I can't and I've seen it hundreds of times. Okay, so we start off with our supposed protagonists, Brad and Janet, who are a newly engaged couple and are on their way to see their old high school science teacher, Dr. Scott, to celebrate as his class is where the pair first met. On the way, their car breaks down during a storm and they decide to seek refuge in a nearby castle, which it's a really creepy looking, scary castle. It's not a place I would choose to seek refuge, but there we go. We wouldn't have a story. Um, So once inside, Brad and Janet find that not everything is as it seems, as the castle is full of partygoers, sexual antics, aliens and debauchery, led by the castle's master, Dr. Frankenfurter, who has a habit of creating life forms in order to satisfy his own sexual desires. So, after some sexual mishaps and mix-ups, Brad and Janet's relationship is strained until they discover that the whole situation was a planned scheme by an alien, Dr. Frankenfurter, to capture them at the castle in order to lure Dr. Scott to the premises, as he has now been discovered as researching alien life forms. Dr. Frankenfurter's plan is foiled when it is revealed that two of his most loyal servants, Riff Raff and Magenta, are in fact undercover. They then attempt to arrest, but then kill Frank for his sexual crimes and extreme lifestyle before the whole house is beamed back to the planet of Transylvania, (laughs) leaving Brad and Janet behind in the wake of all the chaos. It's just, oh and also like you've just said that, and I'm like, I'm already thinking like, God, yeah, but there's like a million other things that happens in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So trying to condense that plot so that it was a little bit more like followable, yeah, was really hard because I've left out some kind of integral moments, but also there are so many subplots. It is too plotful. It's too to get in. It is too <laughs> plotful. That is the technical term. But there you go. That is a a little overview of what the story is about. Okay, so this is the part of the show where we do a little deep dive on the lyrics and music behind some of our favourite songs from the show that we're covering. So I'm so excited today to be able to talk about my favourite song from Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is of course, Science Fiction Double Feature. As we've kind of discussed, Richard O'Brien took so much inspiration when writing Rocky Horror Picture Show from the kind of horror and sci-fi B-movies around during the 70s. And that is so evident throughout Science Fiction Double Feature because it is absolutely packed full of references to kind of bad sci-fi B-movies. Not all of them bad, actually, I should say. So what I thought it would be interesting to do today is go through each of the lyrics and just unpick the references because it's so interesting. I love a good pop culture reference and I thought it would maybe be fun to test our listeners as well. So make sure that you're pausing after I read each lyric, writing down an answer, and then you get a point if you get the reference right. Um, but definitely do pause and uh, have a go yourselves. Uh, thanks so much to Den of Geek. I'm using their article, which is brilliant, and it sets out all the different uh, references because I didn't know loads of them either. So let's start then and remember to pause and give your answer. So the song opens with, 
Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still, but he told us where we stand. So the day the earth stood still, of course, is a kind of sci-fi cult classic. It came out in 1951 and it's based on the short story Farewell to the Master by Harry Bates. Uh, It was directed by Robert Wise and it starred, of course, Michael Rennie as the alien who, uh, as Den of Geek put it, finds humanity in humanity only to have humans shoot him in the ass on his way back to his planet to say how non-threatening we could become. Oops. Uh, Michael Rennie then, he was an English actor, um, but he is kind of most famous for uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still and uh, for playing Jean Valjean in the 1952 version of Les Miserables. And Flash Gordon was there in Silver Underwear. Um, So this is a pretty easy one, I think. Um, Flash Gordon is, of course, a very famous kind of uh, sci-fi comic book, um, comic book series and TV series. Flash Gordon then, um, he was actually played by this kind of ex-Olympic swimmer, Larry Buster Crabbe, um, in the 70s. And then it was also remade in 1980 with Sam J. Jones in the title part. And, very fun fact, Richard O'Brien actually made a cameo appearance in the series. Claude Rains was the Invisible Man. So again, pretty easy one. The Invisible Man, of course, it was just remade a couple of years ago um with elizabeth moss originally it was a universal pictures film that came out in 1933 and it was of course uh based on the very famous sci-fi novel uh by hg wells who's kind of like the king of sci-fi it's basically about this doctor who kind of finds a way to make himself invisible and then i mean lots of things happen but he ends up kind of driving himself mad um And it, of course, stars Claude Rains as the titular Invisible Man. Claude Rains would then go on to be nominated for an Oscar in the film Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And just to bring it all back to musical theatre, he played the Phantom in the 1943 film version of The Phantom of the Opera. Okay then, so finishing off the first verse, then something went wrong for Feyre and King Kong. They got caught in a celluloid jam. So this one... I mean, I can't believe there'll be anyone out there who doesn't get points for this. King Kong, of course, one of the most iconic, iconic films of all time. So the original King Kong was made by RKO, the production company, um, in 1933. And it was directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shodzak. And it starred Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham. But of course, it also starred the famous Feyre as the character Anne Darrow and this is quite an interesting nice fact about this so when she died which was in 2004 because of course that kind of very famous scene with the Empire State Building where King Kong um, kind of brings her up there with him and she's in that kind of beautiful dress uh, they actually dimmed the lights on the Empire State Building in New York for 15 minutes which uh, just out of kind of respect for her Alright, so then at a deadly pace, it came from outer space. This is a super easy one. Um, It came from outer space as a 1953 kind of sci-fi film. It was produced by Universal Pictures and it was directed by Jack Arnold. And this is how the message ran science fiction double feature. So what they're saying there, double feature is obviously um, referenced with films. So if you go and see a double feature, you've just seen two films back to back. Um, so the next part of the chorus then, Dr. X will build a creature. 
So Doctor X was the 1932 Warner Brothers films and it was made in Technicolor, um, which is very, very exciting. <laughs> there's also kind of a double meaning here. So they're saying Doctor X will build a creature, but of course we also know that Doctor Frankenfurter, our Doctor Frankenfurter, is building Rocky. So there's kind of like a double, a double meaning there. And Francis stars in Forbidden Planet. Again, this is a super easy one. Anne Francis is a, a very, very famous American actress who, of course, starred in The Forbidden Planet, which is a 1956 film. So fun fact about Anne Francis then. She, of course, starred opposite Barbara Streisand in the movie Funny Girl. Uh, she played Georgia James, but a lot of her scenes actually ended up on the cutting room floor because they were so worried that she was going to steal the kind of limelight from Barbara. I mean, I think you've got to be pretty good if you're stealing the limelight from Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I knew Leo G. Carroll was over a barrel when Tarantula took to the hills. So we'll go through this super quick. I think this is a pretty niche one. Um, Leo G. Carroll was a an actor. Uh, he began acting uh, after fighting in World War One, and he kind of started off his career on Broadway. So he was in a lot of Alfred Hitchcock films. He was really well loved by Alfred Hitchcock. So he actually starred in six of his films, including Spellbound and North by Northwest. Leo G. Carroll, of course, starred in the film Tarantula, which, no surprises here, is essentially just about a massive spider. <laughs> um, and uh, that came out in 1955. And I really got hot when I saw Janet Scott, which this is a great bit of rhyming, fight a trypid that spits poisons and kills, which imagine saying that three times fast. <laughs> So you're probably guessing it by now without even knowing the references, but Jeanette Scott, again, another famous actress um, who starred in the movie The Day of the Triffids, uh, which came out in 1962. Um, and this is, a, it's quite an odd sci-fi film. Um, and it's about basically like vegetables who begin to eat humans. <laughs> the Day of the Triffids, um, it was directed by Steve Sakely and it starred Howard Keel, who we covered uh, when we talked about Calamity Jane. And my favourite Howard Keel fact is that he basically, <laughs> the only reason he went into acting was because um, his neighbour, who was his landlord, I think, overheard him singing in the shower and said, oh, you have such an amazing voice, you need to become an actor. Uh, and that's what he did. <laughs> okay, so skipping ahead now to the kind of last chorus, we have science fiction, double feature, Dr. X will build a creature, see androids fighting brad and janet um so of course brad and janet are our two um love interests they're the two human characters who happen upon this kind of gaggle group of uh, of aliens <laughs> uh and francis stars in forbidden planet at the late night double feature picture show i want to go to the late night double feature picture show by rko so a little bit about RKO then, it stands for Radio Keith Orpheum and it is, it basically was one of the big five um, American film production and distribution companies um, of the kind of golden age era of Hollywood. And what's quite nice is obviously they're saying uh, they're doing that kind of double feature, science fiction double feature, um, and as Casey's going to talk about a little bit later, there is actually a sequel to Rocky Horror and often nowadays in kind of like a lovely twist of fate, they're often shown together um, as a double feature. So you watch Rocky Horror, then immediately after you watch Shock Treatment, which is the sequel. 
I believe it also gets shown um, quite a bit with Repo, the genetic opera, the, um, the film. So yeah, that was a little quiz on all the references of all the science fiction B-movies referenced in Science Fiction Double Feature. I hope you were keeping score. I hope you did really well. But more importantly, I hope you all go and watch uh, some of those amazing sci-fi films that clearly inspired Richard O'Brien so much and um, they're paying homage to in the opening number of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Well, one of my favourite songs from the show is actually uh, the song that Janet sings called Touch It, Touch It, Touch Me, um, multiple touches. Um, and it's one of my favourites because it's the, what, the first one that I was introduced to uh, from the actual musical. I mean, obviously everyone knows the time warp, but that I actually got to uh, take on as an actor um, at drama school. So, and I remember doing all like the character work behind it and being like, this is such an odd musical. Like, why do I not know anything about this? But I chose this song because musically it's just very, very interesting. So it it starts, I mean, here we go, deep dive into musical world again. Um, what's new? So it starts in A minor. That's the key that it's in. And you can really hear that from the very beginning of the song. There's a very like minor tone to the song. And I think they're doing it for like a dramatic irony. They're doing it to be like a woe is me moment for Janet, um, just to kind of add like a bit of comedy. Um, and it's it's almost kind of like the, the rhythm in the music, it says to be done freely. So it's almost suggesting that Janet as a character is kind of finding her feet through her thoughts and she's taking her moment to be like, I'm gonna take center stage. Like, this is all about me now. Like, there's all this crazy like shit going on around me. This is my time to be like, hang on a minute. Like, I, I want more. Like, I've, I've just discovered like sex and like, I want more. So then into verse two, it then it takes her into um, kind of, getting a bit more excited so in verse two you start to hear uh, a few more of kind of like the drums kind of coming in for example and that actually brings the song to tempo so up until then it's been very like free you don't really know what the tempo is and then suddenly when the drums are it's like bam we've got a tempo and it's helping her as a character kind of build the confidence um and you can also hear in the background, one of my favourite things, which I think I've talked about in previous episodes, um, an ostinato uh, in the piano. And the ostinato is basically a repeated motif or phrase, uh, which, uh, and this, in this particular song, it's in a melodic line. So you hear this like, da 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 and you kind of hear that in the background. And that itself helps to that kind of feeling of the rhythm picking up and that kind of push towards getting her to this kind of point of like exploding and like momentum. And then suddenly you hear this like loud electric, like um, a loud uh, electric guitar chord that feels like, bam, we're in the world of rock and it's like, right, let's get going. And the electric guitar is off the beat. So it's that kind of like juxtaposition of everything else being very to the beat. And then suddenly it's like, but oh, we're into the world of like rock and sex. And then you go straight deep dive into the chorus, which suddenly feels very like lively and upbeat. Um, and the thing that really, 
that's really interesting from a musical point of view is it sounds very major. So up until now, everything has sounded very like minor, very doom and gloom, really fitting the brief of like a scary horror like science fiction and then suddenly it's like yay we're happy we're in a we're in a major kind of tune i i annoyingly couldn't find the the actual sheet music for it but i'm predicting that it might be going into its relative major which is c that's what again there might be muses at home being like no it's not c but that's all i can think it's probably gone into because it's definitely not key change um and that kind of like shift from minor to major almost kind of suggests that like she finds a real pleasure and happiness in kind of like giving into this creature of the night, which obviously we know is Rocky. Um, But it's kind of her like really enjoying her herself, like discovering this like sex and like really enjoying it. Um, And then it then goes back to another minor verse into another major verse. So it's very like, it's a very straightforward verse chorus structure of the song. Um, Interestingly, in the second major verse that comes up, Columbia and Magenta sing along as well. They kind of have like, well, actually, sorry, Columbia and Magenta sing her chorus again themselves in their own voice, which kind of suggests that like Janet has has entered their world, like and Columbia and Magenta are now like in the same world together. Um, And then and then there's like a final chorus again of touch toucher but then it's taken up a key so it's kind of like suggesting that this momentum is just like built even more and I don't know about the version but I love this for uh, the film version because you really hear Susan like taking loud like gasps and like almost like she's like <laughs> grabbing for air it kind of suggests that she's like climaxing and like really like enjoying what's happening in that in that song um and yeah, like this is why this is why I really love this song because it's just like it's a moment where like a character feels like they're they they can't they can't um, they can't give in, but then they do give in, and that's why I I just really love this song. But yeah, yeah, it's got a perfect end, doesn't it? With that like um, that little kind of like yelp she does, where it's like do do do. Like, it's very, very cute. Yeah. Like, it feels like the opposite. It's like mimicking an <laughs> orgasm, but it's just like a really fun ending. It's just a great song from start to finish. And it's one of those songs as well, I think, that wastes no time. So it's really, it's what, like two and a half minutes long, maybe? Something yeah, it's, like quite a qu- it's quite a quick song. And it is, um, it just wastes not a single second. And it's one of those songs that you're like, you feel like you put it on and you're like, I feel like I just put this on. And yeah. already it's not yeah. enough. You just want to crave it more and more. Uh, again, mimicking a bit of an orgasm there, I think. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's just like one of those that you're like, I've just not had enough of this. I need to listen to this song again. Um, and Sarandon has such a perfect voice for it as well. Like she has that kind of, when like when she starts off, she's like, I was feeling turning. But she has like that this really tinny voice. It's like not a great voice, but it's perfect for this role. That's like yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like a little bit sexy, but it's also just really weird. <laughs> like it's a bit frightening yeah. as well. I it's, think it's just such a great voice for that role. It's kind of like like that that woman who's quite timid and shy and gets a little bit drunk and gets up on karaoke. Like yeah. and everyone's like, Yeah, go girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> um, 
no, I was just gonna say my favorite bit about that song is Magenta and Columbia like watching on. I feel like voyeurism is heavily embedded into this musical. It's all throughout it. It's yeah, especially kind of- Magenta and Columbia because in the film they have like the uh, which isn't really in the stage play. They watch from different bits in the musical, but they have like yeah. the camera set up, don't they? It kind of cuts yeah. to, like a CCTV room. And they're, are they like in their bedroom or something and they're kind of just being little girly pops and they're... Yeah. It's like a sleepover, but they're... Yeah, what, that's it. <laughs> they're like watching Janet have sex. <laughs> but you want to know what else forms a pretty big part of the show? And it's probably why I was so obsessed with it when I was 14. <laughs> it's bisexuality. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, the show basically every single person in the show is either bisexual, bisexual, or becomes bisexual just by osmosis being in that house. It feels like so. Just in terms of characters, we obviously have Doctor Frankenfurter, who is making a man. He's making an ideal man, but he also has Columbia as a lover, and he also sleeps with Janet. Um, we have Brad who definitely has a little moment, I think, with Dr. <laughs> yeah. Frankenfurter, which I don't even think he was expecting. Um, and, of course, with Janet. So he has a little bisexual tryst. Janet, I think, only sleeps with men yeah. in the show, but is flirted with by a lot of women. Yeah, because um, they, um, they, she gets undressed, I think, by Magenta and Columbia. Yeah. Exactly. Um Magenta and Columbia just appear to be doing what they want, I think. <laughs> they are just, again, it's interesting that, actually, that's quite an interesting point. No women really sleep together as part of the show. They do a lot of flirting, but no. Yeah. I think yeah. it's hinted that the, like, Frank, Riffraff, Magenta and Columbia all sleep together. I think that's yeah. sort of a, like, that's hinted at. Um, especially I think Magenta and Columbia I think in that in Touch Touch Me yeah it's a bit like a isn't um, isn't Riff Raff isn't isn't Riff Raff and Magenta brother and sister no? brother and sister yeah yeah but they they still sleep together <laughs> it's, wow <laughs> it's heavily implied that they have sex which is gross is it? But, I don't think I've ever clocked that. There's the whole moment where, like, he's like touching her, like stroking her arm, and he's like, "My beautiful sister." Oh yeah. Ew. <laughs> and that, and and fun fact, I'm pretty sure that the handshake they do, do you know, where they both like touch fingers and then go up to elbows, they do it. It's like quite a big thing throughout the whole show. Oh yeah, like the yeah. I think that's supposed to like mimic a sort of like, ah. alien sex, I think, is like because they once they get to the elbow it's it's kind of a climax. I was about to say though, I mean I guess that's like a big element of the movie is that like you don't know that they're aliens and like that kind of also adds that thing of someone watching you. Like aliens are watching mm. us as a human race. And it's like the narrator is watching the story and then the aliens are watching what's going on 
and it's like it's that weird like inception void where it's just like there's always someone watching someone else and I guess that's what makes it creepy and like horror yeah I think like it really makes you question like okay well then who's watching me and then who's watching the aliens it's just like it's like this never-ending yeah and then obviously we as the viewer are watching the movie so it's like it's like a never-ending void yeah and then you I suppose like with the um involvement of like audiences with the show as well it's like a whole just feedback loop isn't it of like yeah the line is so blurred between participant audience spectator like at all times isn't it and then I suppose that yeah. even goes even further with the floor show um in Rose Tint My World um yeah where Dr. Frankenfurter controls um, Brad, Janet, Columbia, and uh, Rocky. And they do this, one of the best numbers, I think, Rose Tint My World, um, when Brad's, Brad really has a moment in Rose Tint My World where he's like, whoa, which just makes me laugh so much. Um, but yeah, that's like a whole other kind of spectatorship thing. Um, and then when Dr. Frankenfurter is singing I'm Coming Home, and then it almost goes into like a dream sequence, doesn't it? Well, you know, when they're all in the pool. Yeah. And, and it turns, all, into, like a dream uh, it turns valley. into it. Um, don't dream it, be it. Yeah. Ugh. But yeah, that always reads to me like a dream valley. Like we're suddenly like, what the flip's going on? Why are we all yeah. in the pool? Yeah. Um, but we're just elevated, obviously, out of his fantasy. But yes, I have now just remembered, Casey, that it is. So we do see some lesbian sex. Thank God. Um, (laughs) Riff Raff goes into Columbia's bedroom and he finds Magenta and Columbia having sex but he does also multiple times is going for Magenta now that I've thought about it yeah it's I thought that that was like that was really obvious throughout the whole of it because there's the one of my favorite lines is where he's like he's like stroking her and he's like my beautiful sister and then she's like when will we return to Transylvania (laughs) and like cuts him off (laughs) and it's like a a lover's spat but then they kind of have that like the right and then right at the end they do the kind of like finger touch to elbow again and then that one kind of like once they get to the elbow the house sort of like whoo like takes off like and i think that's it's supposed to be like a climax that oh oh okay <laughs> maybe i don't like magenta as much as i once did um maybe aliens are into that maybe it's a-okay in the Milky Way. <laughs> Maybe aliens don't have a gender. Don't have a gender? Yeah. Oh, well, I th- yeah, I think that's that's probably going to feed into it somehow. Like, they're obviously taking on human bodies, but obviously Rocky Horror is so fluid with its gender expression. That's kind of another reason why it resonates so much with LGBTQ plus audiences and it has such cult following. Obviously, it's the depiction of Dr. Frankenfurter as a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. Whether those terms are maybe a correct description of him or not, that those were the ones that were used. Um, but yeah, actually, now that you say that, perhaps the reason why... Because it wasn't controversial at the time. It was always just... Like, it didn't get done for... Um, like lewdness or anything like that that a lot of other maybe films gay kind of films would have had at the time but maybe that is because they're getting to use the not excuse but like it's well they're in human bodies and they're aliens so they exist outside of this realm and it's so wacky and weird anyway 
the yeah like the whole thing was supposed skills. to be so unnaturalistic and like far from reality as it, it yeah could so be. the kind of i suppose like right-wing bigots are not picking up on like the kind there of... was there was some like sort of like there was some protest i mean there's still some now i follow some of the um touring cast and there's still some sort of like religious protests happening um like they stand outside the theater and protest it it's quite funny like anyone's gonna listen outside a rocky horror show <laughs> that's not yeah. the target audience um not the target audience <laughs> welcome to stage door secrets where i'm gonna tell you all of the hot goss that happens behind the scenes of our favorite shows but just keep it between us so Quite a few, as you can imagine, there is quite a lot of gossip surrounding this show, film, productions, everything. One of the ones that came to mind straight away is that when Tim Curry entered the stage in his Frankenfurter costume, apparently Meatloaf got up and left um, and he was going to leave. Like He was not okay with it and was kind of like... I don't want to be associated with this. I don't know what to make of it. Um, before eventually coming round to it. And then he kind of embraced it, which is nice of him to change his tune. But yeah. Wow, I never... Was this on the... Is this in the Broadway production? I think or so. It was, it was... Well, it was whenever he... did. Was he in the cast of the West End version? He was yeah. in the Broadway version. Oh, the Broadway... Yeah, so it was. it was then... I think it was like the first time he met Tim Curry and saw him wow. in like the the Frankenfurter getup, and he was like, "I'm heading out." He was not into that. I mean, that. that is. I mean, it's obviously not nice, but I am. I'm awfully pleased that he uh, he changed his mind. Yeah, and then after that, he he embraced Rocky Horror like wholeheartedly. Like he was always really into it, and like with the fans and things like that. But yeah, I think at first, I mean, you know, it can be quite, it was like the 70s and it only just sort of aired into that kind of sexual awakening and like free love and all that stuff. So a lot of people might not have been used to that. Um, But yeah, so apparently he walked walked off and wasn't going to come back. Um, During the filming of Over at the Frankenstein Place, because... uh, Barry Bostick and Susan Sarandon were in the rain for so long. Susan Sarandon actually caught pneumonia on the set and then had to continue performing and like film the rest of the movie whilst being like extremely poorly. I think I did know that. that yeah. She got pneumonia. Richard O'Brien sold his rights to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, I wasn't sure if it was the... I, I couldn't quite find out whether it was the rights to the name, uh, like it, the franchise of itself, or whether it was just the, the film. But he sold his rights to it. Um, but maybe because it was a flop when it came out, it, it, it bombed in the cinemas before it kind of became a cult classic. So he did sell his rights to it, but he sold it to 20th Century Fox. So all of the money from the film, so you're right, so he probably thought, oh, it's just not going to make money. Yeah. Oh, God. And then it made $220 million. Yeah, and he yeah. didn't get a look in. How annoying. 
I'd be so mad. That's crazy because he sold the rights to the story. Yeah. Why did he do that? That's like all the characters and everything. But he still retains the copyright to the play and the compositions in it. So he's making back. Well, he's making bank off of the soundtrack. Oh, that's and he's good. Making okay. Bank off of all of the productions of it, but it's the film. But that is gutting. Yeah. Because he think how many times that's shown probably on a weekly basis at film theaters. Crazy. Yeah. Um. Apparently, so during the stage production, science fiction double feature is sung by the Usherette, which is like this character that's only seen at the beginning and the end of the stage show, um, which is pretty much every version that is played by the actress who plays Magenta in the show as well. So Patricia Quinn, who had played obviously both Magenta and the Usherette, only agreed to sign on to the film because she really wanted to sing science fiction double feature. Apparently, uh, she filmed it. They So the lips, the iconic Rocky Horror lips, they are Patricia Quinn's that are singing at the beginning of the movie. But then I'm not sure whether it was, happened before, whether it was discussed before or it happened during post-production. But it was then her voice was replaced with Richard O'Brien's. So apparently she was really quite annoyed about that. That's pretty oh slack. That is pretty yeah. slack. So she got the kind of iconic lips, like that. When you, whenever you think of Rocky Horror, you think of the lips. But her voice was completely yeah, but taken she away. She wanted to sing it. Yeah, and they knew that. That's pretty slack, I think. Yeah. So Richard O'Brien um, sang it instead and took over that. Also, a really random fact that I did not know until today, but Princess Diana loved the Rocky Horror Picture Show, <laughs> and I was like, that is crazy. I just can't imagine. I sat down like. In a palace going, should we put on Rocky Horror Picture Show? <laughs> I just really thought that was a fun little fact. Um, it also inspired a sequel, which was a massive flop, but did not kind of gain the cult following that the original movie had. Although diehard Rocky Horror fans really embrace it. It is really fun and really campy. It's um, set with the same two main characters, so Brad and Janet, kind of this is like five years after the events of what's happened in the first so it was still set in Denton but Denton has sort of become this tv studio audience like the town has become a tv studio um sort of playing <laughs> to the voyeurism a little bit again I think it's kind of a recurring theme um so everything is turned into a tv show and Brad and Janet kind of become like the stars of this tv show has Richard O'Brien, Patricia Quinn, Little Nell um, are still in this one, but they play different characters. They all play workers in a hospital that um, Brad gets admitted to. Really fun and really campy. Nothing at all kind of like the first Rocky Horror in terms of plot or anything like that. I've never seen that, I must admit. I've never it's called, seen that. It's called that. Shock Treatment. Um, I think I've heard of it, but I've never seen they, it. The soundtrack is on Spotify. I always give it a cheeky little listen. Um, some of them are really good. There's a song called Little Black Dress in which Janet transforms into like a femme fatale. Um, which, Whoa, okay. Yeah, yeah it, doesn't have, it doesn't have... It's two different actors playing Brad and Janet, but they are playing the, the same characters as in the first... And sorry, to confirm, are the, so Columbia 
magenta everyone are they playing the same alien versions of themselves no they're playing like they are playing sort of like erratic doctors and nurses in this sort of it's it's basically it's shock treatment it's based in a like a mental institution that's what it's sort of branded as in the film so it's a little bit like iffy on the the plot but yeah got yeah that's what the that's it's very strange it's it's a hard plot to follow, so it is kind of weird to watch. But it was very early eighties, and it has that sort of early eighties feel about it. It feels completely different to the original Rocky Horror. Uh, one last little random fact: that the time warp was only added into the show because it they needed to fill it out because the original script was forty minutes long. So the time warp was oh added gosh. in as like a sort of a filler song, and then it became like one of the biggest songs. I was about to say, thank God they did. Yeah, definitely. But it came one of like the biggest songs. Like, you can't you can't go to any sort of party, family gathering, Halloween <laughs> party without hearing the time warp, which I just think is yeah. And my favorite fact that I always tell people is Christopher Biggins is in Rocky Horror. Yeah, he is. He's one of the um, Transylvanians. <laughs> he's one of the chorus. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like he's in the lineup when they do the time warp. You know, and they're. And he's got the he looks like a little penguin. Um, I love trotting that fact out to people. Like, well, Christopher Biggins was in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now this bit is really exciting because we have the chance to do our own fantasy casting using our brand new Mega Mix Mega Switch casting. This is the part of the show where Rosa will give us a cast from any random show or production and we get the chance to cast Rocky Horror. So without further ado, who are we seeing today? All right. So for this casting session, I want you to cast um, any part you like in the Rocky Horror Picture Show using any actor who's appeared in any season of American Horror Story. I've got a really good one. I think Dennis O'Hare, I think that's his name. Excellent riffraff. Excellent um, riffraff. Dennis O'Hare, hands down. He would be brilliant. Just because I can't remember which season of American Horror Story it is where he keeps all the dolls in the attic. Uh, it's in Coven um, and he plays the butler. He's so yes, good. Yes, yeah. And that gives me riffraff vibes. Like the, yeah. I think that would be great. Yeah. Okay, Dennis O'Hare, booked and busy as Riff Raff. Flo, who have you got? I would do Evan Peters as Rocky. That's a yes. great shout. Yeah, very good shout. I could imagine him doing the Sword of Damocles really well. Yeah, I just think because also like his vibe is very good at like being mysterious and like you don't really know what his vibe is. And I think that's very Rocky. Like you don't really know what his personality really is. He's kind of void of one almost, isn't he, Rocky? Yeah. He's just, uh, he just, he knows that he's alive and he's a bit frightened. And that's kind of, yeah, <laughs> bless him. But with his hair in like the earlier seasons of American Horror Story, he's got that sort of blonde, mm-hmm. curly mop going on, hasn't it? So I think that'd be. Oh, yeah, I could totally see it. Yeah. And actually, he kind of does do a bit of a Rocky. God, it's really mirroring in uh, American Horror Story Coven. Because 
do you remember the plot line in Coven where he is like killed and then they put him back together yeah, and then yeah. he's like brought back to life but he's kind of Frankenstein-y and he's a bit confused and yeah. so actually if anything it really works. What do you think Rosa? Who would you cast? So I think Frances Conroy when she was younger would have been a great magenta. Yes. Yeah. I think for my own selfish reasonings I'd like to see Sarah Paulson as magenta. Yeah. That's a good shout. But Fair that's enough. because I fancy Sarah Paulson a little bit, I think. Um, but she's very good at doing, like, <laughs> creepy, quirky. Yeah, I think she'd have that sort of, like, dark... Like, I'm thinking of um, Sally in American Horror Story Hotel. Yeah. Also, oh yeah. my God, if we're going with that, Lady Gaga as Columbia. Oh my goodness, yeah. Lady Gaga as Columbia is so good. So good. That's such good casting. She would be brilliant. Also, Jessica Lange, or Jessica Lange, I know it's controversial, um, when she was younger, would have made a beautiful Janet. Yes. Yeah. Do you know who could be a good ro- uh, Frankenfurter? Oh, what's his... Is it Finn Whitrock? He plays... <gasps> yes, he He's... is excellent. He's dandy in... Um, Freak yeah, Show. Yeah. Oof, he would be an excellent Frankenfurter. He's yeah. great and very creepy. Oh, that would be so good. God, this cast is shaping up real nice. <laughs> also, just on American Horror Story, the reason I picked it for this week is because, um, you know, that clip's been going around from American Horror Story Coven, uh, <laughs> where Jessica Lange or Lange um, wakes up in, like, her version of hell oh. with the, the axe man, and then she's like, God, I've got to get out of this place. And then she looks at the um, the wallpaper and she's like, Naughty Pine! <laughs> It reeks of cat piss. <laughs> Not a pine. Oh, she is such an actress, that woman. She is excellent. Oh, well, I think we've got a pretty good cast here. I'm trying to think if we're, we need an Eddie. That's the only person that we need. And then we should have a full, a, an Eddie and a Brad. Oh, what's his name? The one who's in Hotel... And he plays like Lady Gaga's lover. Um, I do Matt Bomer. Matt, oh yes. Um, oh. and you know who else I actually think would fit in really well to this. Um, I think he could do a Doctor Frankenfurter. Is Zachary Quinto? Who who's he? You know again? who he played Spock in Star Trek, and then in season two he plays the Leatherface. Oh, yeah. yes. In asylum. Yes. I feel like a lot of the men in American Horror Story merge into one for me. They all have that sort of blue eyes, black hair, model features. So we needed a Brad, and who else did we need? Eddie. An Eddie. Oh! Am I tripping, or is Matthew Morrison in uh, American Horror Story 1984? Yeah, American Horror Story 1984. Oh god, Matthew Morrison, that was Eddie. He would be like, then Eddie said he did and did. He was so like preppy. <laughs> but when he threatened your life, oh, he would be a good Brad. Blade, no. He'd yeah, play a good he would Brad. be a good younger Brad, I think. Yeah. That's very good. I think American Horror Story and Rocky, there's like a Venn diagram of casting for Rocky Horror 
and for American Horror Story, they really overlap. The characters just have such a similar, like, quirky energy. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming along our time warp journey into Rocky Horror. Uh, We have covered the gamut A to Z today. We've discussed bad B-movies, we've discussed stage door secrets, and we figured out that pretty much whoever casts American Horror Story should also be casting for Rocky Horror on Broadway. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for listening, and as always, you can find us on social media at Sunday on the Pod, and we would really, really appreciate if you rate and reviewed us, preferably five stars, um, so we can kind of continue to build um, our little show. And just like that, we've been... What a guy. Makes you cry. Und I did. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.